0: Welcome to the Tory Podcast Tales from Near and Far Read to you by Pratham Data A Charles History of England by Charles Dickens Read to you by Protum Data Chapter ten England under Henry I called Fine Scholar Part two So we know what's happened. Henry I turns into a brutal king, and then, a bit pitiless against his brother, Robert of Normandy, another you know, one who went on crusade, imprisoned him, and then took his son away. His son, luckily, was saved. The Baron, who was the child's guardian, ran away with him, took him abroad, and troubled with a child from court to court, talking about the legitimacy of Robert the Normandy's son over Henry I. The youth and innocence of the pretty little William Fitz Robert, for that was his name, made him many friends at that time. When he became a young man, the King of France, uniting with the French counts of Anjou and Flanders, supported his cause against the King of England and took many of the King's towns and castles in Normandy. But King Henry, artful and cunning always, bribed some of William's friends with money, some with promises, some with power. He bought off the Count of Anjou by promising to marry his eldest son, also named William, to the Count's daughter. And indeed, the whole trust of his king's life was in such bargains and he believed, as many other king had done since and as one king did in France a very little time ago, that every man's truth and honour can be bought at some price. For all this... He was so afraid of William FitzRobert and his friends that, for a long time, he believed his life to be in danger and never lay down to sleep, even in his palace surrounded by his guards, without having a sword and buckler at his bedside. To strengthen his power, the king with great ceremony betrothed his eldest daughter, Matilda, then a child only eight years old, to be the wife of Henry V, the Emperor of Germany. To raise her marriage portion, he taxed the English people in the most oppressive manner and treated them to a great procession to restore their good humour and set Matilda away in fine state, the German ambassadors, to be educated in the country of her future husband. And now his queen, Maud the Good, unhappily died. It was a sad thought for the gentle lady that the only hope with which she had married a man whom she had never loved, the hope of reconciling the Norman and English races, had failed. At the very time of her death, Normandy in all of France was in arms against England. For, so soon as his last danger was over, King Henry had been false to all the French powers he had promised, bribed and bought and they had naturally united against him. After some fighting however, in which few suffered but the unhappy common people who always suffered whatsoever was the matter, he began to promise bribe and buy again and by those means and by their help of the Pope exerted himself to save more bloodshed and by solemnly declaring over and over again that he really was in earnest this time and would keep his word the king made peace one of the first consequences of this peace was that the king went over to normandy with his son prince william and a great retinue, to have the prince acknowledged as a successor by the Norman nobles and to contract the promised marriage. This was one way of the many promises the king had broken between him and the daughter of the Count of Anjou. Both of these things were triumphantly done. With great show and rejoicing, and on the 25th of November in the year 1120, the whole retinue prepared to embark at the port of Barfleur for the voyage home. On that day, and at that place, there came to the king Fitz Stephen, a sea captain, and said, My liege, My father served your father all his life upon the sea. He steered the ship with a golden boy upon the prow, in which your father sailed to conquer England. I beseech you to grant me the same office. I have a fair vessel in the harbour there, called the White Ship, manned by fifty sailors of renown. I pray you, sire, to let your servant have the honour of steering you in the white ship to England. I'm sorry, friend, replied the king, that my vessel is already chosen, and that I cannot, therefore, sail with the son of the man who served my father. But the prince and all his company shall go along with you in the fair white ship manned by the fifty sailors of renown. An hour or two afterwards, the King set sail in the vessel he had chosen, accompanied by other vessels and sailing all night with a fair and gentle wind, arrived upon the coast of England in the morning. While it was yet night, the people in some of those ships heard a faint wild cry come over the sea and wondered what it was. Now, The prince was a dissolute, debauched young man of 18 who bore no love to the English and had declared that when he came to the throne he would yoke them to the plough like oxen. He went aboard the white ship with 140 youthful nobles like himself, among whom were 18 noble ladies of the highest rank all this gay company with their servants and the fifty sailors made three hundred souls aboard the fair white ship. Give three casks of wine, Fitzstephen, said the prince, to the fifty sailors of renown. My father the king has sailed out of the harbour. What time is there to make merry here and yet reach England with the rest? Prince, said Stephen, before morning, My fifty and the white ship shall overtake the swiftest vessel in attendance on your father the king, if we sail at midnight. Then the prince commanded to make merry, and the sailors drank out of the three casks of wine, and the prince and all the noble company danced in the moonlight on the deck of the white ship. When at last she shot out of the harbour of Barfleur. There was not a sober seaman on board. But the sails were all set, and the oars were all going merrily. Fitzstephen had the helm. The gay young nobles and the beautiful ladies, wrapped in mantles of various bright colours to protect them from the cold, talked, laughed, and sang. The prince encouraged the fifty sailors to row harder yet for the honour of the white ship crash. A terrific cry broke from three hundred hearts. It was the cry the people in the distant vessels of the king heard faintly on the water. The white ship had struck upon a rock, was filling, going down. Fitzstephen hurried the prince into a boat with some few nobles. Push off, he whispered, and row to land, it's not far and the sea is smooth, the rest of us must die. But, as they rowed away fast from the sinking ship, the prince heard the voice of his sister Marie, the Countess of Perch, calling for help. He never in his life had been so good as he was then. He cried in an agony, row back at any risk, I cannot bear to leave her. They rowed back. As the prince held out his arms to catch his sister, such numbers leaped in that the boat was overset. And in the same instant, the white ship went down. Only two men floated. They both clung on the main yard of the ship, which had broken from the mast and now supported them. One asked the other who he was. He said, I am a nobleman, Godfrey by name, the son of Gilbert de Lale. And you? said he. I am Beryl, a poor butcher of Rouen, was the answer. Then they said together, Lord be merciful to us both, and tried to encourage one another as they drifted in the cold, benumbing sea on that unfortunate November night. By and by, another man came swimming towards them whom they knew when he pushed aside his long, wet hair to be Fitz Stephen. ''Where is the Prince?'' said he, ''Gone, gone!'' The two cried together, neither he nor his brother nor his sister nor the king's niece nor her brother nor any one of all the brave three hundred, noble or commoner, except we three, has risen above the water. stephen with a ghastly face cried, woe, woe to me, and sunk to the bottom. The other two clung to the yard for some hours at length the young noble said faintly i'm exhausted and chilled with the cold and can hold no longer farewell good friend god preserve you so he dropped and sunk and of all the brilliant crowd the poor butcher of rouen alone was saved in the morning some fishermen saw him floating in a sheepskin coat and got him into their boat, the sole relator of the dismal tale. For three days, no one dared to carry the intelligence to the king. At length, they sent into his presence a little boy who, weeping bitterly and kneeling at his feet, told him that the white ship was lost with all on board. The king fell to the ground like a dead man and never, never afterwards was seen to smile. But he plotted again and promised again and bribed and bought again in his old deceitful way. Having no son to succeed him after all his pains. The prince will never yoke us to the plough now, said the English people. He took a second wife Adelaide or Alice, a duke's daughter and the Pope's niece. Having no more children, however, he proposed to the barons to swear that they would recognise as his successor his daughter Matilda, whom, as she was now a widow, he married to the eldest son of the Count of Anjou, Geoffrey, surnamed Plantagenet from a custom he had of wearing a sprig of flowering broom, called Jenet in French, in his cap for a feather. As one false man usually makes many, and as a false king in particular is pretty certain to make a false court, the barons took the oath about the succession of Matilda and her children after her twice over without in the least intending to keep it. The king was now relieved from any remaining years of William FitzRobert by his death in the monastery of Saint-Omer in France at 26 years old of a pike wound in the hand and as Matilda gave birth to three sons he thought the succession to the throne secure. He spent most of his latter part of his life which was troubled by family quarrels in Normandy, to be near Matilda. When he had reigned upward of 35 years and was 67 years old, he died of an indigestion and fever brought on by eating, when he was far from well, of a fish called lamprey, against which he had often been cautioned by his physicians. His remains were brought over to the reading abbey to be buried. You may perhaps hear the cunning and promise-breaking of King Henry I, called policy by some people and diplomacy by others. Neither of these fine words will in the least mean that it was true, and nothing that is not true can possibly be good. His greatest merit, that I know of, was his love of learning. I should have given him greater credit even for that. If it had been strong enough to induce him to spare the eyes of a certain poet he once took prisoner who was a knight besides, But he ordered the poet's eyes to be torn from his head because he had laughed at him in his verses and the poet, in the pain of that torture, dashed out his own brains against his prison wall. King Henry I was avaricious, revengeful and so false that I suppose a man never lived whose word was less to be relied upon. Thank you for listening if you enjoyed it please comment and please like it and subscribe please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read thank you